was like, who am I to write a book? But then when I was back into my coaching session with overthinkers, I was like, no, yeah, we need to do something about it. So <laughs> like, yes, I was curious about that. But then I like to mention that it's good to have like a growth mindset, a curiosity mindset, but you need to add the audacity mindset and the audacity is about doing things. So I was like, okay, listen, just give it a go. Act before you overthink. Welcome to Multiple Hats, a show about STEM professionals who have gone off script and carved their own path beyond the tracks that were set for them. Science, technology, engineering, mathematics, medicine, how they found their why and what it takes to make it happen. I'm Angelique and on the show today, I'm talking to Lison Mash, the author of the book Act Before You Overthink. And nowadays, Lison delivers corporate workshops all across Australia to help people becoming more effective leaders by making the decision process more effective. She immersed herself into the mind of other thinkers, chronic perfectionists, and distilled all these unhelpful habits that most of us don't even realize are freezing us into analysis paralysis. And I'm sure you can relate. If you are looking about what else you could be doing with your career or contemplating starting your own business, you probably already overthought that a lot. Today, we hear about how Lison went from graduating in engineering, working in software development, being in a sales role for giants like Salesforce, and how she left the corporate world behind to unbecome and reinvent herself into a life coach at first, and then decided to write a book and create workshops to help people living fuller life by acting before overthinking and what it takes to leave it all and carve your own very special path. Lison, can you introduce yourself? Where are you recording from today? Thank you everyone for listening to this podcast now. I want to acknowledge that I hope that whatever I'm going to share is going to be inspiring you along your own journey. Say, so, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and how did you end up in Australia? So I grew up in France and I've traveled a lot over 33 countries so far. My parents were a doctor without borders. So we spent one year in Cameroon when I, I was a baby. And then we went back to France. And then I started to travel with my parents. And when I reached the stage where I could make my own decision about what I wanted to do with my life, I started to travel even more. I did all my internships in Asia and that gave me another vision about the world that I was living in. And I was thirsty for more, to discover more culture. And Austria is my second expatriation before I was living in China. And I'm also very proud to say that I'm an Australian citizen since last year. So I'm a dual citizen, French and Aussie. Thanks for sharing that. That gave us a little bit of the color of your beginning in life. And then, say, what I know from you is that you started with an engineering degree. So this podcast is talking to all our STEM graduates and 
professional who can spin their career in any way that they want. And I'm very interested to you, Junie, because I know you picked engineering, which is already quite atypical for women. Uh, were you surrounded by 99% of men or was it more women in your class? <laughs> no, 95% of men. <laughs> like from, you know, from my studies and even when I entered the workplace. So yes, why I started those STEM background is because... When I was in the physics class, the teacher used an LED, like a small lamp, and put a battery on it. And suddenly light was on. And I was like, wow, that's so fascinating. I want to know why it's happening like that. And that started my curiosity. And so I loved the physics classes more than any other classes. And that's, I think, how I get into it. Right, yeah, the light bulb moment, I suppose, inspired you for engineering. (laughs) Well said. (laughs) The light bulb moment. And so, okay, so you go into engineering by all uh, male-dominated environment, and then you start working in in sales for a tech company, first in China and then in Australia. What did you like in this job? And and what are your happy memories from this time? Mm. So, in fact, you know, during my five years of studying electronics, IT, I realized that tech was predictable, but humans were not. I was part of some association at school and we had some projects. So we had to find people that could develop the website or whatever project we were working on for the client. And usually the tech part was all good, but then the human side was a bit more of a struggle. And that made me wanted to know more about human behaviors. And so that's why I went into a sales career because that's where you most of the time spend your days talking with people internally, externally, and trying to make sure that everyone is going to be happy at the end of the day. So that was more the challenge that I was after. That's why I, I moved from being in front of my computer all day long and coding from talking to people all day long. So that's already your first change, right? From your degree, you decided, okay, that degree, I need to do something a bit different, but still leverage it. And so you went into the sales roles. And then after some corporate jobs, you decided that that wasn't making you happy anymore. And I'm really keen to explore how you came to this realization and how you pivoted because a lot of us have invested time, passion on our STEM degrees and for some of them, a very hefty fee. And say for many of them, I hear that it's difficult to part from this because it's kind of an identity and also a little bit of the so-called sunk cost fallacy where we focused on our past investment and we just don't want to let it go. So can you take us through this journey of realization that you needed something different and what helped you realizing all this? I love your question, Angelique, because now I can tell everyone that I understand what is a sunk cost fallacy. But before, I had no idea of what was this one, what was it is about. So whatever project where you put time, money and effort, and the longer you go into it, the stronger can be the sun cost fallacy. So whether it's in your relationships, whether it's in your career, whether it's like you bought a house and there is lots of renovation to be done. And so you put more energy money on because, yeah, you don't want to maybe lose the face, as in China we would say, or lose an identity of, oh, I might have taken 
a wrong decision at some stage in my life. So I have to quit. Quitting is not something that our society is recognizing as successful, right? We have to push harder to, to grind and to stick with whatever decision we made. But sometimes the decision that is best for us is to quit. And anyway, so I wasn't so much full of those type of wisdom before when I made this decision. I just was not happy anymore, as you mentioned. And then I was like, okay, so I need to find what can align my lifestyle to to the life that I want to live because we have only one life to live. So what can I do? And then I was like going into experimentation. I started to train as a coach. I had some clients and I could see some patterns among those clients, which was about, you know, thinking too much, overthinking. And one of my mentors one day told me and challenged me about, okay, what else could I do than just being a coach? And then he challenged me about, oh, maybe you could write a book about overthinking because it seems like this is a pattern that you can see in a lot of people and ultimately they are becoming stuck. And so they regress, they stagnate in their life, in their career. And you want to highlight that and just write a book. So you just say, okay, I realize I'm not happy anymore. And I didn't know at that time yes. that quitting is an option, but you did it anyway. It was hard. I Now I'm going back in time. It was hard because indeed, you know, I am, like my studies, the time to, to get those studies, it's a lot of efforts for my family, for myself. And most of the people is the Mibelizon. You could stay in this career and you could have fantastic role in, in those corporates in the future. But when I pictured that for my future, I was like, but that's not me. That's not for me. So what can I do about it? I'm really strong about, okay, what can I control? And is there any on, another option that I don't know about that maybe I can figure out? So I think it was about curiosity and believing in me that I will be resourceful and I will find a way. Yeah. And I mean, the core confidence that you had to quit your job, because yeah, imagine people telling you corporate job, you can't quit. So, uh, how, what are you going to do? And you had the courage to do that. So did you quit your job and then look at what else you could do? Or did you do that in parallel and then decided, okay, I've got a bit of an idea and now I'm confident to quit my job? It was incremental. So I started to work part-time as three days a week and then the rest of the week, two days as building my practice. So that was incremental change. Right. So you did a bit of de-risking there, trying both at the same time. And then when you started your practice, did that work out from the beginning? Is that what you imagined it would be? No. And in fact, for me, it was really hard to do both well. So I made again a decision that I will back myself and to stop the part-time job and to be full-time on my practice, even if it didn't fly yet. So that was a bet on my side because, yeah, it was hard for me to do them well. So that's, that was my decision at that time as well, like mm. after four or six months. Yeah. So in your book, Act Before You Overthink, I hear you talking about aligning, using this lens of your own values to make those decisions. 
Would you mm. describe that as what happened to you? You had to look at your value and thought, who am I and what do I need to do? Indeed. So I, I align with my values and then I made the decision with my highest value at that time. And I always do now moving forward. And I, I realize that values can change over time as well. You have different phase in life where because of what you've gone through and what you learn, like your main values might be similar, but like you have little values around that flying around that sometimes you feel, oh, okay. yeah, maybe they change over time. Yeah, that's true. And also I feel... And it's personal opinion, but I think that sometimes some of the value that I thought I had, like my dream job or things like that, were based on a story that someone had fed to me. And then I was kind of living the dream of someone else. And obviously it doesn't resonate because then it doesn't align with your core value. But it takes some time to realize that what are your true, true value and, and who you are at the core beyond this set path that someone's light there for you very deep angelique what you just mentioned i love <laughs> it time i'm like you i'm like i wasn't full of wisdom 10 years ago <laughs> but we've grown and our values are yes. more aligned to our own person so that's that's fantastic to hear right so just before we go back to the book and things i know that you gradually built your practice but i also know that you tried a couple of other things do you want to tell mm -hmm. us about studying your for example your cat surf retreat which was a fantastic experience and how you came about that and why you moved <laughs> away from it Yeah, so it was from like my own personal experience. So when I decided to quit the corporate world, I flew to Fiji and spent a few weeks doing kitesurfing to replenish, to refresh, to to brainstorm with myself, to reflect and, and, and to grow. Sometimes, you know, you have to unplug, to plug back in your life. So that was for me how I did it. And That helped me so much that I say, okay, I'm going to share it with more people. I'm going to share this type of experience with people where they could come with me on trips and we work on their mindset. We work on their well-being and we are active with water sports. And so that's just because I love it so much for me that I just wanted to share it with the world. So that's how it started. That's great. And I think it comes back to where we were saying, you realize you were stuck in that life, in that role, whatever it was. And so one of the things that now I understand helped you is changing mindset, changing location, completely disconnecting to be able to ground again on something different. And I think many of us just fail to do that. We just try to, I need a solution, I need a solution, I need a solution. And then in this hamster wheel, we can't find a way. Do you want to tell us a bit more on overthinking on this particular way So when I did my research for my book, interviewing more than 365 people worldwide on their relationship with overthinking, that's one of my questions I ask a lot. And so people could experience that they would fall into the rabbit hole, you know, like Alice in Wonderland. Like you go into a weird and strange world in your head and it's kind of surreal, it's Maybe something about the past, something about the future. Sometimes it can be a mix between past and future. And it's not really too much about the present anyway. So most of the people, we use our convergent thinking skills, meaning that we fixate on something that we want to solve. And so it's kind of going through a dark funnel with a very narrow-minded vision. And it's like if you are in front of a door, And you try to open the door with one key. 
you try once, it doesn't open. But you try again with the same key over and over. So that's kind of convergent thinking. And in order to problem solve, in order to have like a healthy thinking, we need also to use our divergent thinking skills. Divergent thinking is about looking at different aspects that you can link together, like remote ID that you can bring connection. So it's kind of brainstorming, right? And so if we go back to this analogy of being in front of a door, it's like, oh, you look around you if you can find more keys so you can have a go and try to see if the door is going to open. And when you do both, divergent thinking, convergent thinking, you can problem solve. And most of the time, one aspect of overthinking could be too much about convergent thinking and not leveraging enough our divergent thinking. Fantastic advice from that. Get out of your own head and change landscape. Now, we talked about how you got there and you said that the mentor suggested that you could write a book. So first thing, you got a mentor. How did you go about finding a mentor? Mm, it was a long journey. I was looking at someone that would I would identify as a fully expressed leader. So as you mentioned, trying to avoid like limiting belief and seeing someone that is more like egoless and of service to others, no matter what really they were doing about. And on that journey, in fact, I found a community. And within this community, in fact, I have several mentors, but this discussion happened with one in particular. And when he told me, write a book, I was like, what? Lison, writing a book? Like already, you know, English is my second language. It's already a bit hard. And now I need to write, but I'm not a writer. And then I went into a lot of like imposter syndrome, like self-doubt. And I was like, who am I to write a book? But then when I was back into my coaching session with other thinkers, I was like, no, yeah, we need to do something about it. So <laughs> like, yes, I was curious about that. But then I like to mention that it's good to have like a growth mindset, a curiosity mindset, but you need to add the audacity mindset and the audacity is about doing things. So I was like, okay, Lison, just give it a go. Act before you overthink. I imagine how that must have been daunting. I mean, writing wood is a whole new word. And as you say, that wasn't something you've done before. So I really like how you say also like, you know, the chicken and the eggs. What came first? Did you have a problem to solve? It's like somebody's going to do something about it. And this somebody is going to be me <laughs> because who else, right? So audacity is a really good word for that. I um, really love like getting just out of, of just having ideas, but then taking this step, being audacious to make it a reality. And that's something that I'm really interesting about because we all have ideas and we all dream mm. about different things, but there is a mm. so really big difference between the one who have ideas and keep dreaming about them and the one who can make it a reality. And with this podcast, mm. I really hope to distill what people like yourself are capable of doing and why did they move from, I have an idea to, I have a complete plan so then when you said okay I'm gonna write a book about this how how did you start did you start a whole process did you take a writing course how did you make your master plan to get to there did you have a timeline when I started to have the idea first thing first is like okay I have to do it so I started blogging 
So I open a Medium account and gather a list of people that wanted to receive a newsletter. And I started every month to send something out. And after six months, I started to send something every two weeks. And that's a rule that whether I feel like it or not, every two weeks, I'm sending something out there. And that built my writing muscle because ultimately, I also made peace that I didn't want to become a writer, writer, writer. I just wanted to share my ideas that people could understand them. So by doing those newsletters, it helped me as well to get some feedback. You know, sometimes I have people that reply, say, oh, I like this idea. Or even when I was in my coaching session, I started to share things and see how my clients would react. And that helped me to gather as well some ideas, but I wanted more. So that's why I went on this journey of interviewing more than 365 people, plus reading lots of psychological and behavioral science studies to make sure that my work would be science-based and talk to the overthinkers because I started to know them well. And some of them, you know, they can be perfectionist. They want to have the data source. They... So to make sure that my work would be relevant to them, I had to make sure that I build it in a way that it will be relevant for them and that it will resonate with them. So it was not about like my writing skills anymore, I guess. It was more about like being relevant to my audience and make sure that the work is going to be not a waste of time for them to go through. Right. So getting feedback is a good thing. Can I make a confession here? Yes. So I read your book, obviously. I did check a couple of references. I was like, I need to know that the data is solid, you know? <laughs> so I did cross-check a couple and I really loved that you had that biography. But now you sang, you know, I knew that they wanted to be grounded into data. And I'm like, okay, I did check a couple of those. <laughs> Can I make a confession, Angeli? <laughs> yeah, you go. <laughs> so I'm coming from the underthinker spectrum. And by emerging myself with all this work, I become an overthinker. You know, it's like sometimes when comedians, they have to act and they have to, to cast for a movie. They can go six months or one year living as they were the act, like the persona, right? And that's what kind of happened for me. Because of all those interviews and all the stories I heard, I was like, wow, that's so much stuff ongoing into the head and and they need data, they need structure and they want to know why. I was like, wow, okay. So so that's why, you know, I, I was like, and hopefully, you know, I was not starting from an overthinker landscape because I guess by interviewing overthinker, if I was an overthinker, I would have overthink even more. So now I'm proud to say that I'm more at the middle of the spectrum, like a healthy thinker, you know? I understand more about being more like an underthinker and an overthinker. And of course, it's not binary, but it's, it's a spectrum. We all go from different ranges. But by doing that, I grew so much by doing this work with overthinkers every day. And that's what I had this pressure to make my point clear. So to become as well, a, like a kind of a teacher in writing, you know, when you talk, you can come back to the idea and re-explain in another way. But 
when you write, you have only one shot. I mean, of course, when you are writing, you can think about it. But then if people read two pages and they don't understand the notion, that's it. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I say it's, it's funny to say that you started from underthinking and so now you're on a healthy medium, which is good. You know, we, we all want to be on this healthy medium. I think you touched that on, on your book, on your first chapter on the value of data and more is not always best and less can be more. But then what is the threshold? You know, we don't want to make a decision on the whim. We want to have some kind of base. So what's the healthy medium? And I'm glad to hear that you found it by going into that journey. So it's a balance. Everything is about balance, finding balance. Yeah, no, that's right. So then I want to talk about another little bit of, of making such a big change and a big decision. Quitting your job is not a small decision and it comes with financial implication. And in your book, you definitely talk about consequences of decision and the impact of the reversibility of the decision. Can you tell me more about this concept of trading up decision reversibility and perhaps also illustrate on how this play out in your own journey? Mm -hmm. Let me use a metaphor for our listeners. Imagine, guys, you have a door in front of you which is open and you believe that you go through once and then you can't go back. So that's most people, they have this belief that when they make a decision, they can go back on their decision, like which study I'm going for, which job, which partner in life, which house am I buying? And so they go once through the door and that's it. And what I'm sharing in the book is that you can go back through this door. So you can reverse, you can go through again and reverse. But when you go back again, it will cost you something or several things. It can cost you time. It can cost you money. It can cost you relationships, energy. It's going to cost you. But you can reverse. You can go back or you can change course or whatever. But there is a cost associated. So in your own life, how would have been the reversibility then? Let's say you quitted your job, you had your, your practice and then you moved gradually. Mm -hmm. What if now you're like, do you know what? Financially, it doesn't work. I can't make a living out of that. If that was the case, how do you reverse that? Because that's one of the worry of many people, right? They're like, okay, I want to get that out of the ground, but I've got a kid, a mm -hmm. mortgage, whatever it is that holds you back. So how do you reverse these things? I think it's to be on the lookout for opportunities. So when you go into a path, you open your eyes for opportunities. And you never know, you might find people that you want to do another journey with or you find another industry you want to work in. So there is always like, just be on the lookout and open your eyes. That would be my thing. And yeah, of course, then you can go back. Maybe you can call back your old boss and say, oh, I'm looking for a job. You can just, you know, that's it. And maybe if you go back, maybe if you've been out of the workplace for a few years, maybe you can get a salary cut. That That's, you know, maybe some trade-off that you will need to do. So whatever your decision is going is like, is it worthwhile for my future self as well? Because we take decision on the short term, but as well, it's good to go into the long term as well and to be aligned with our values. But you can call back your old boss and go back to your job maybe and, and get a salary cut. So you see, you can go through this door, but you can go back from on the door, but then it's going to cost you something. I like what you say about looking out about opportunity, because when we talk about reversing, you might think about reversing straight from where you come from. But what you are describing isn't 
per se, reversing to where you come from, okay, perhaps getting your old job and, and getting a pay cut, whatever. But also you said, you know, looking out for other opportunity, perhaps there's something else that you're going to yeah. think about doing. Indeed, before reversing, look around a bit more for opportunities and then maybe reverse. Yeah, maybe there is a two-step process here. <laughs> All right. And so then along this journey, can we talk about your supporter and detractor as well as trade-off? Were people supportive of this whole idea? My partner, from the beginning of our relationship, he's been supportive on all the decisions I've made in my life. So I'm very grateful to have him on my side. And of course, I had naysayers. Like, I call them naysayers. Like, oh, maybe, you know, you can't do it. Or maybe they don't tell you, but you can feel it. And that's fine. You know, if it's happening, I just believe that we are on different paths, on different journeys, and that's time to say bye-bye to each other and move on. So they didn't feed your fear of not making it? People who said, nah, why are you going to do that? Oh, yes. Uh, of course, of course. You know, when you have this type of discussion, and I think, you know, it's kind of like having a mirror discussion. Most of the people, they will have their own fears and insecurities and they will project them onto you. Mm, that's a good way to think about it. And so you talked about your partner being supportive. Now, I really want to mm -hmm. talk about this because I have a strong belief and is that many women need to juggle career and home responsibility, where it is kids or it is caring for elderly. A lot of the unpaid work in this world falls for women. And I strongly believe that unless we free up capacity for women to do their own choices and focus on their own career, it is very difficult to juggle all that. And now you talked about your partner. What did your partner do to support you in this journey? I think first it's emotional support that is key uh, because this game is hard and you have lots of flaws, lots of highs. and they have to fully embrace the ride with you. And that's also when I think you see what is true love is that they can see you at your lowest point and they still believe in you when sometimes you might not even believe in you anymore. And that happened to me. So I think it's really about the emotional support. And of course, in terms of productivity, time so definitely sharing tasks like grocery shopping cooking whatever task is part of the daily life we share like there is not one that do more than the other it's we just share every task and we just don't share what we prefer or what like most of the time also we learn and sharing even if the things that we don't like to do we just do it right because if someone is sick so it's kind of a teamwork in fact when i hear yes. myself you have to make sure you have a team around you that supports you in this journey because like i like to surround myself with like people that can play like the well-being officer so that to make sure that you don't have too much meetings or you're not too much pushing too much because then you will crash and then it's going to take maybe a few weeks to go back on track. And then you have like a thinking partner, like a business partner, like you have different people that want your success and you want their success as well. And you can play some of those roles for other people and so forth, but you have to surround yourself of what I call 
a red team because we all have blind spots. And so with having a team that is here for your support and your success, you increase your chance of winning to the game that you are playing, the game of life. You increase your chance of winning the game of life by having a team that is here to support you. And to build that team, obviously your partner is part of your life, but did you ask for help? Because that's another topic. A lot of time we want to do everything alone and asking for help can be very difficult, but also very powerful. Is that something that you've done? Yeah, a bit late. I have to admit, as you mentioned, it's hard. And it's hard, but it's so much needed if you want to grow. And I learn it. And I'm, I'm happy to have learned it now because I'm going to ask for help all my life. You know, at the end of the day, Angelique, we are human and we are bonding creatures. We need each other to belong, to grow in this world. We can't like having a one man show on an island. That's not the world that we are living in. We need each other. Mm. And it's not fulfilling either to have a one man show in an island. So yes. that's not what we're striving <laughs> for. And then I want to ask you about your biggest trade-off because we all know we tried something. Say, what mm. was it for you? So for me, it was a massive change in my lifestyle and to start doing home and pet sitting, which allowed me to not spend money for a flat. And that was my trade-off. So yeah, to in fact downgrade. Downgrade in everything, even materialistic things. Like all my things could go in, in a car. That was all my life could go in, in a car. So we could pop up from houses to houses. Wow. Yeah, right. That, that, that would have make a big financial cut. So I understand that you needed to support us. And I think it's really good that you're saying that because a lot of time, and I see it for myself, I'm like, oh, people can do this because they have this or that. And I don't know, I don't see the trade-off, right? Unless mm. someone tells you, well, you know, um, I went from being in an apartment near the beach to doing pet sitting and that's how mm. I made it work until now I can be back to whatever lifestyle I want. Mm. There is a trade-off, right? So, and, and it's Indeed. important to see it. And, and so many learnings. Like I learned that pets could bring you so much joy within the day. Like sometimes I can be in front of my computer and then you have them around and, and say, okay, let's go for a break. And then you see how people live and then you know how you want to live. Then you live in different locations. So you say, oh, I like this environment. That's uplifting. Oh, I don't like this environment. So you learn so much more into, <laughs> it's a very fast track of lifestyle change. Mm. Like Then you know what you want. Then you know what you don't want. And even if, like I want to build a house one day, I will know how to build it because I've slept on so many different houses and flats that I know how I would build my dream house, for example. So you learn so much things and as well, it's it's being humble, you know. Mm. And and it's a bit of a lifestyle sampling, as you say, you know, you sample a location, sample a house, bubble hopping. I love it. It shows resource, right? To even have thought about doing something like this. Now, obviously it's not for everyone, but there is other ways that someone else can come up with. I'm really happy to have this example to share. And so now that you are in the game, that you are an author, that you have your own practice, that you deliver workshop all across corporate in Australia, tell me, how do you still ground yourself into this confidence when, for example, you have to deliver a workshop to a C-suite that have 
you know, they all have 20 more years experience than you have. I will summarize that in one sentence. It's all about relevance, not experience. So being relevant over experience. Wow. I am going to put that on a flashcard. So it's all about relevance and not experience. Yeah. Are you the person relevant for the job? Because sometimes, you know, on LinkedIn, we can see that people have like 30 years of experience in something, but sometimes it doesn't mean anything. It's not the number of years you, you've done or whatever. It's really about the relevance. Like, mm -hmm. are you relevant for doing the task? Are you relevant for speaking? And can you bring value? It's all about adding value. And I really think it's powerful to highlight that to our audience, because if we're talking about people in STEM, a lot of those people are perhaps in academia or even in research and things like that. And I find personally from experience that before you are listened to or taken seriously, people rely on a long, long time of experience. But as you mentioned, experience isn't per se always the most important. Obviously, you expect that if you have a lot of experience, you find relevance, but it's not automatic. And perhaps you have a lot of experience, but you're not relevant. So I like this idea of grounding your confidence into thinking today, I will bring something relevant to my audience, to my workshop, to the people around me. And that's why I'm confident that I can do this. Awesome. Awesome advice. Love it. And <laughs> and then another question about this new journey. So obviously it is anchored in a growth mindset. Can you tell us what played to your strength and where were your gaps and how did you fill those gaps? Mm. <laughs> so I think my gaps are mainly about this decision of making my practice in, in English and English is my second language. So whether it's writing or speaking, I'm still on my growth journey. So there are still massive gaps that I'm, <laughs> that every day I'm navigating. So I like to mention to focus on 1% better each and every day. Mm. So just to make sure that at the end of the day, you know, I'm proud of something that I even write or speak or, and that's focusing on the 1% better. Yeah, so one step at a time rather than thinking mm -hmm. of the big, big goal. It's a long game. I'm a, I guess mm -hmm. I sign up for a long Yeah, but I mean, for our audience, I think it's relevant to see the time frame. You're nailing it. I met you six years ago and you were still in that corporate job and you didn't quite know what you wanted to do about that. And then I've seen you growing into this. Okay, I want to do something else. And then you came up with this, you know what? I am going to write a book, find the relevance and deliver it to people. And honestly, hearing you, I was like, wow, that sounds great. I want to see it happens, but I want to see if it happens. And two years after, pop, the book came out and, you know, <laughs> you're doing this workshop and I'm like, wow, okay. So there is a lot of discipline. Oh yeah, discipline key. Consistency, discipline. Consistency, discipline. But I also remember one thing you told me is like, I'm not someone who sit down and think for hours. You know, you, yeah. as you say, you're doing and yeah. putting your foot on paper requires to do that. I imagine that that was a gap for you. You know, I really like the book, The War of Art from Stephen Pressfield. And then it's about building habits. So stacking habits on things that are enjoyable because I, I love to enjoy things. But I realized that in order to work on 
longer project, like writing a book, I needed to hack myself. So I experiment a lot around productivity, around rewards, around even environment. So I bought a standing desk because as you mentioned, that's literally something that was hard for me is to stick my bump onto a chair and write, literally. So I still needed to find a way. And in fact, the standing desk was a game changer for me because I can stand, I can sit, and I'm still in front of my computer and I can move. Mm. There is movement and stillness. And again, it's to find balance. <laughs> it's simple hacks sometimes, very simple hacks and, and still it helps. I'm going to have another two questions for you. One is taking the lead from Brené Brown, whose work on vulnerability and authenticity is absolutely fascinating. So just very in simple words, can you tell us about your biggest flop? So I, during one meeting with a CEO, I burst into tears. And for no reason. I was in fact just tired, but I didn't know. I was so tired that he said something so nice. You know, like he was so kind, so nice to me. And I think it didn't happen for a long time. And so I burst into tears in front of him. And what did he say? He grabbed my hand and told me, Lison, that's okay. So I'm very grateful that I was in front of such a wonderful person because you know, when you are in a working environment and when you have a, meet, a professional meeting with someone and and then you burst into tears in front, I think, you know, as you mentioned, like Brené Brown is all about <laughs> authenticity and I didn't know, what, like, that's, and it's, it's weird, right? Because he was so nice and so kind with me and I burst into tears. It, it was, he wasn't mean or anything. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, I see. I see what you mean. And you were just like... Oh, finally, someone's nice to me. Like, yes, a kind human. <laughs> yeah, I think probably it came from the fact that, you know, you went through a hard one, trying to prove yourself, having to go against people who the naysayer and all that. And suddenly you realize, man, that was hard. But here I am, you know, and, and yeah, I can I can see why you would burst into tears, especially with fatigue. I can definitely relate. So for our audience, we can all cry just because of fatigue. And so that's absolutely fine. So did you do business with that person? So it's in the process. In the process. Okay. But that didn't deter him. So, so that's, that's really recent. You see, that's a fresh example. And the last questions that I want to ask to everyone, because I am very mindful that where you are born and what you are given at the beginning is a head start. And so I want people to reflect. Can you, can you reflect on this privilege that made your journey somehow easier than for other people? What is luck and what is hard work in all this story? Wow, it's such a powerful question. <laughs> yes, I think by being privileged, I would say that I, I'm born in France from a good family and my parents were loving. And I think, you know, the balance between luck and hard work. I like to come back to the notion of locus of control, which is a psychological notion of what you can control and what you can't control. So yes, what I can't control, I was born in France, right? And in a good family. So mm. that I can't control because that's how it was. And then it's what can I control? So I could learn English. I could learn Mandarin. 
So I think that's how I would answer this question is like, go back to your locus of control, guys. Like, what can you control? What can't you control? And sometimes, you know, we have this tendency to sometimes fall into maybe the victim mode of like, oh, that's been done to me or that's been done for me. And I would come back, okay, what can you do? What can I control? Yeah, perfect. No, I really like that. And, and you're right, we don't control how we were born and what we were given. And sometimes it helps us and sometimes it's hidden us, but there are other things that we can control. So, yeah. Well, that's a wrap. What an amazing story of growth and action before overthinking. <laughs> Is there <laughs> a last thought you want to give us before we wrap up this question? Yeah, sure. Guys, remember, ask yourself, have I been enough curious lately? Most of you will say yes. And add, I have been enough audacious lately. And that's maybe where most people lack. So be audacious, be bold. That was Liz Hommage, the author of Act Before You Overthink. I hope that she left you with the same energy that she usually leaves in the room. I often describe Lison as a storm who can't be undone. Once you see what can be done, with the confidence and the determination that Lison has, you cannot ignore the fact that perhaps you could too make your own vision a reality. And see, Lison did not always have that discipline in her. It was not innate for her to sit down for hours and gather her thoughts on paper. But she knew that there was a gap and something that she had to master if she wanted to achieve her goals. Putting system in place to help you and starting bit by bit, like she did with her newsletters, is a powerful way to get momentum. Building your own way is riddled with challenges, but there are so many ways in which you can make this work if you can manage to take this first step. You can read her book by visiting her website. Just Google Les Hommages. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it. Tune in for monthly episodes. You can follow multiple hats. Visit my website. That's angelicgreco.com.au or follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Just search for Angelic Greco. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to tell me about your story, leave me a message.